we are going to do part one of the Anabaptist series that I'm putting together. Honestly, I don't know how many parts it's going to end up being. Um, there's actually a vast amount of material ranging from popular, what we would think of as popular literature, uh, literature written for you know the average person about various Anabaptist groups, all the way up to a lot of scholarly material. And interestingly, the Mennonites, and we're going to talk about Menno Simons, uh, the, the founder of the Mennonites, uh, there's actually a lot of resources with Mennonite organizations today um, who many, many of the scholars are Mennonites themselves that are connected with these organizations. They've done a tremendous amount of work in researching all aspects of Anabaptist development uh, beginning in Europe in the 1500s and on through to the present day. And um, while we're kind of in our introductory phase, you may not be able to see the title of this book very well. It is a book entitled The Reformers and Their Stepchildren. And this book is part of the Descent and Nonconformity series put out by a publishing house called the Baptist Standard Bearer Incorporated. Uh, I highly recommend this book. Um, this is not an easy book. If you're really serious about learning a lot more about Anabaptist groups and what they believed, uh, I do recommend this book. I have read it. Uh, it took me a long time to read it. It is, it is a fairly scholarly book. The foot, there's a lot of German in the footnotes, um, but don't let that deter you. You know, if you want, you could type that into or copy and paste it into Google Translate, and you could get a rough translation of the German in there. But it's a very well-written book. Um, he goes into a lot of the theological differences between the Reformers and the Anabaptists, and again, I highly recommend that book. So the picture you see up uh, on the screen is a picture of Dirk Willems, an Anabaptist, Dutch, who is actually saving from drowning in the icy waters in some river, probably in, in Holland or somewhere in the Low Countries. Um, he is actually in the process of saving the man who is going to help put him to death. Um, one of the things that we will see as we go through um, and trace the story of the Anabaptists is they were severely persecuted. Oftentimes they were drowned. And the group uh, known as the Dunkers, uh, sometimes called the German Dunkers, get their name from the persecution that was dished out to them by Roman Catholics, Lutherans, and other Protestants. Okay, so beginning in about the 16th century, the 1500s, the same era as Luther, Calvin, and the other reformers that we've talked about, uh, there was a, a group of people, and they were not a well-organized group, um, but there were many people throughout Europe who began to think very differently than either what Roman Catholicism was teaching or what the, the reformers were teaching. <clears throat> they came to be called the Anabaptists. And the word Anabaptist comes from the Greek, Anna, 
meaning again, and baptizo, meaning to immerse or to dip. Of course, the word baptism, which comes straight out of the Greek, is very familiar to us. But these people were also called the rebaptizers. And this group also became known as the Radical Reformation. Now, in our day and age, when you call someone a radical, usually you are thinking of someone who is on the left side of, you know, if you're thinking in terms of American politics, you're thinking of someone who's on the left side of the political spectrum. Um, but radical doesn't really mean that in this context. These people were really trying to go back to the Bible and nothing but the Bible. And so the, it, they are termed radical reformers in the sense that they were trying to go back to what they considered to be the roots of Christianity. So the emergence of the Anabaptist um, happens right around the time of Luther and Zwingli. So as Luther and Zwingli, you know, as Luther was tangling with the Roman Catholic Church and as Zwingli was you know, going all over the place, France, Switzerland, sometimes parts of Germany, these groups of radical reformers were beginning to emerge. Some of these people who had been impacted by Lutheranism and the different reform movements became convinced that Luther and Zwingli had not gone, in some cases, nearly far enough in their efforts. Anabaptists are the spiritual ancestors of modern Baptists, Mennonites, Amish, Hutterites, Quakers, and others. The movement's most distinctive tenet was adult baptism. In its first generation, converts submitted to a second baptism, which was a crime punishable by death under the legal codes of the time because church and state were so fused together. And, you know, if you think of a, a time period where there's no means of electronic communication, written records are hard to come by, if people are baptized, you have a record of them. The easiest way for the state to keep control of the population was to know who was, who was being born, who was dying, and other than that, it was kind of hard to control, you know, where people were in your, you know, if you're a king and it's the 1500s, you don't have a census, you, you know, you may attempt to take a census, but that's difficult in those days. But if you have baptism records, you know who's being born and then death records because people would be buried in the church. There would be a record of their death. Those records assisted the state in controlling the population. In its first generation, these radical reform converts submitted to a second baptism, and they also rejected the label Anabaptist or rebaptizer because they repudiated, they went against their own baptism as infants and called it a blasphemous formality. They regarded it as completely wrong. They considered the public confession of sin and faith sealed by adult baptism to be the only proper baptism. And you can see that many, many groups and churches today who are influenced by these ideas 
uh, do not baptize infants. They baptize people who have essentially come of age. So they can baptize children who, who can make a public proclamation of their faith, um, but they will not baptize someone who cannot make a public uh, affirmation of their faith. So following Zwingli, they held that infants are not punishable for sin until they become aware of good and evil and can exercise their own free will, repent, and accept baptism. So an infant can't do any of those things for himself or herself. But, you know, in, in the Roman Catholic theology, if an infant dies unbaptized, that infant may go to purgatory, may go to hell, goes to someplace not good, and so you must baptize infants. But they did not adhere to that way of thinking. The Anabaptists also believe that the church is the community of those who have made a public commitment of faith, and it should be separated from the state, which they believe existed only for the punishment of sinners. And these Anabaptist ideas ran completely counter to the notion of Christendom, which we've talked about before. This is the idea that everybody living in a given nation is a Christian. Everybody's part of the same church. Everybody is ruled by the same political ruler. And church and state are essentially one and the same. Now, of course, if you think like that, the ideas of the Anabaptists are really dangerous. Most Anabaptists were pacifists who opposed war and the use of coercive measures to maintain the social order. Remember when we were talking about Zwingli? Zwingli was very opposed to Swiss mercenaries going off and fighting for foreign armies. The Anabaptists themselves refused to fight as soldiers and were completely opposed to the military and standing armies. They also refused to swear oaths. For example, if you... Uh, gave testimony in a court of law, they would not swear the oath that you would tell the truth, so help you God. They would not do that. Uh, and they refused to swear oaths in any context, religious or political. Many would not pay taxes because those went to pay for wars and for the maintenance of standing armies. For their teachings regarding baptism, and for the apparent danger they posed to the political order, they were severely and widely persecuted. The Anabaptists, like some Protestant reformers, were determined to restore the institutions and spirit of the primitive church. And they often identified their suffering with that of the martyrs of the first three Christian centuries. Quite confident that they were living at the end of time, they expected the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Unhappy with Zwingli's unwillingness to undertake necessary reforms, Conrad Grable, who was one of the first Anabaptist leaders, performed the first adult baptism at Zolikon outside Zurich, Switzerland, probably on January 21st, 1525. Now, in the Schlietheim Confession of 1527, an early group of Anabaptists, the Swiss Brethren, put together the basic tenets of their doctrine. Michael Sattler, a former Catholic monk turned Anabaptist, served as the leader of the group. 
In seven articles, the Brotherly Union, as they called themselves, summarized certain tenets of the Swiss and South German Anabaptists. The first article affirmed baptism to be the basis of the Christian faith. Baptism is made a symbol of Christian faith and of one's intention to live a life united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Those who sin and who twice refuse private admonition shall on the third occasion be excommunicated from the brotherhood because of their life of sin. The duties of the hurt, shepherd or pastor, German for shepherd or pastor, were to read, admonish, teach, warn, discipline, excommunicate, to lead in prayer, to administer the Lord's Supper, and to undertake the general oversight of the congregation. The shepherd or pastor is the only church officer. There is no denominational church hierarchy as is found in Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, Presbyterianism, and so on. The child of God is to follow absolutely the law of love as taught by the New Testament and leave the worldly sword to the officers of the state as ordained by God. Oaths are held to be inconsistent for finite creatures and forbidden for the Christian by the express commands of scripture. The goal was an entirely separate, pure church, the members of which would be forbidden to associate with Roman Catholics or with other Protestants. The idea of withdrawing from the world and forming a separate Christian society was quite different than the views of the Lutheran and Calvinist reformers. The Anabaptist view is completely counter to the idea of Christendom, completely. The Anabaptist idea of the church as a separate entity from the rest of society leads, very importantly, to the idea of the separation of church and state. For many 16th century Europeans, these ideas are so revolutionary that they are nearly unthinkable. It appeared that Anabaptist ideas and practices were destructive to society, so that even Lutherans, Calvinists, and other reform groups looked upon them with hatred. The Anabaptists, uh, if we remember uh, when Jesus is presented with a conundrum by the Pharisees, uh, who are you going to pay, are you going to pay taxes? And Jesus said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, render to God that which is God's. The Anabaptists took that to heart. And they, that was one of the things that helped them understand this idea of separation of church and state which was so radical in its day. Luther and Calvin advocated for religious reform, but never considered separating church and state. The Schlitheim Confession of 1527 achieved wide recognition after the trial and execution of Michael Sattler, the Anabaptist leader who had led the Swiss Brethren by the civil, that is Roman Catholic authorities, at Rottenburg, Germany, on May 20th, 1527. Remember that the German states and other parts of Europe were ruled by emperors who were Roman Catholic and staunchly so. 
So, you know, if you got in trouble with the local authorities, sometimes those local authorities might be of Lutheran sympathies. Sometimes they might be Calvinist. You know, certain parts of Switzerland had gone over to Calvin. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you cause too much trouble, then the state would get involved in a big way. And the state was predominantly still Roman Catholic in its orientation. Sattler was charged with defying the emperor, rejecting the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, rejecting infant baptism, rejecting extreme unction, which is last rites as administered by a, a priest, dishonoring the saints, teaching against oaths, practicing the love feast, marrying and advocating non-resistance. After the trial, Sattler was tortured and then burned to death. His wife and other Anabaptists were executed also. His antagonists drew up nine articles to refute the Schlitheim Confession and demonstrate the official opinion that Anabaptism was immoral and treasonable. And thus began the severe and widespread persecution of all types of Anabaptist groups throughout Europe. In 1529, the Second Diet of Spears in Germany issued a death decree against the Anabaptists. But despite the severe persecutions, the number of people who joined the movement increased, and many Anabaptists sought to move to places where there was less persecution. One of the most important of the early Anabaptist leaders is Balthasar Hubmeier. Born around 1480 or 1481, a peasant stock in Augsburg, which is German in Germany, he managed to obtain a university education and like so many of his day, went from the university to the church. He was mentored by, remember this guy, John Eck, who disputed uh, very heatedly with Martin Luther. John Eck was a Roman Catholic um, teacher and authority in the church. Hubmeier first encountered Reformation ideas through Lutherans, but later came to support Zwingli. Hubmeier introduced Anabaptism to Moravia, which is today part of the Eastern Czech Republic, whose ruling elite welcomed colonies of Anabaptists and other settlers. Persecuted even by the Zwinglians for his beliefs, he was arrested in 1525 at Zurich and forced to recant his views. Hubmeier continued to preach throughout what is today Switzerland, Germany, Austria, and the Czech Republic. He was finally captured by the Habsburg Austrian, I, again, in parentheses, think Roman Catholic army and put to death as a heretic on March the 10th 1528. A very important and very well-known Anabaptist of this period is Menno Simons. Menno was born in 1496, they don't know exactly when, in the little village of Wittmarsum, Dutch province of Friesland. Little is known about his youth and parental home. His parents who lived in Wittmarsum were probably dairy farmers. Now, at this point, you will begin to notice as we go through the, these brief bio, biographical sketches of these Anabaptist leaders, many of them were not from the nobility. 
They were not, uh, many of them well-educated uh, clerics, um, you know, Calvin and Luther had come from the priesthood, had university educations. And as we'll see, there are some Anabaptist leaders who have that type of background, but most of them come from the emerging middle class and even the lower classes. Since Menno did not enter the priesthood until the age of 28, it can be assumed that he made the decision for this career relatively late in his life. He may have received his training in a monastery of Friesland or in a neighboring province. Menno knew Latin and Greek was not entirely foreign to him. Again, he's not a scholar like Calvin and uh, Tyndale and some of the other people we have talked about. But during his study, he acquainted himself with some of the Latin church fathers. And one of his critics said of him, he took the Bible into his hands without formal training, causing such great damage that posterity will not be able to shed sufficient tears because of it. So he was considered to be relatively untrained by some standards. Simons was ordained a priest in 1524 at the age of 28 in Utrecht, which is in the Netherlands or Holland. His first parish was Pingjum near Wittmarsum, where he served as a vicar with two colleagues. Judged by his reminiscences, he was not deeply convinced of the sacredness of his duties, for he states that he joined his fellow priests in playing cards, drinking, and you can fill in the rest. But during the first year of his priesthood, he was suddenly frightened. While administering the mass, he began to doubt whether the bread and the wine were actually being changed into the flesh and blood of Christ. First, he considered these thoughts to be the whisperings of Satan, but he was unable to free himself through sighings, prayers, and confessings. <clears throat> At that time in the Netherlands, there was a heretical group known as the Sacramentists. The Sacramentists denied the actual presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, or in other words, the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. And this thought was first advocated publicly by Cornelius Hone, a Dutch lawyer. The Sacramentists were promoters of a reform movement in the Low Countries, Holland and Belgium, where they advocated the removal of abuses in the Roman Catholic Church and a return to biblical Christianity, although they were not specifically Lutheran or Reformed. Zwingli became aware of Hones and other Sacramentist views and agreed with many of them, and Hones Epistola Christiana was published by Zwingli in 1525. After Simons had been tormented for about two years by his doubts, he finally turned to the Bible and searched it for help on his particular problem. I did not get very far in it before I saw that we had been deceived, is Simons' summary of the result of his search. In the scriptures, he found certainty regarding the Lord's Supper. He found what he believed to be true, that the sacramentist view, which interprets the meaning of the Lord's Supper as being symbolic, 
was the biblical view. Now, Simons perceived that he was torn between two authorities, the Bible and the church, that is, the Roman Catholic Church. Thus far, he had avoided the use of the Bible, for he believed that the Bible had taken Luther's, Wingley, and others out of the Roman Catholic Church. Now he was on the same path. Which of the two authorities would win? He wanted to be loyal to both. In the meantime, Simons found help by reading certain writings of Luther, which taught him that the scriptures should have the first place. Simons also believed that Luther's writings also taught him that if violations of the tradition of the Catholic Church have a biblical basis, they cannot lead to eternal death. Gradually, the scriptures became the authority for Simons and the source of his sermons. Soon, he became known as an evangelical preacher, yet he complains that in those days, the world loved him and he the world. Thus, Simons, influenced by the sacramentists and Luther, began to place the scriptures above the authority of the church. Simons then began to consider whether infant baptism was valid and scriptural. He did not leave the Roman Catholic Church until January 1536, and he went into hiding and traveled through the Low Countries and German provinces looking for sanctuary. Many Anabaptists in hiding themselves came to Simons and asked that he lead them. During this period, Simons came into contact with many Anabaptists who held differing views on the church, the Bible, and even the deity of Jesus Christ. Nope. Sorry. David Joris was someone who Simons encountered. David Joris was considered by many to be an extreme radical reformer. His significance for the Anabaptist movement in the Netherlands has been long depreciated, but he is now seen as the most important Dutch Anabaptist leader from the Bokholt Con Conference of 1536 until his departure for Basel in 1544. Joris embraced 16th century spiritualism, which has been described as a tendency in the period of the Reformation to emphasize the possession of the Spirit, occasionally called the Holy Spirit, and by Anabaptists also called the power of God or the heart, over against a literal acceptance of the scriptures. This was pitted against a stronger reliance upon the letter of the scriptures, such as with Luther and Calvin. Spiritualists emphasized inner illumination with its corollaries, freedom of decision, centering in man's conscience, and neglect of historical elements in Christianity, such as the organized church. Spiritualists de-emphasized the sacraments as the means of salvation, and the historical setting of Christian events, creation, fall, redemption, last judgment, and so on. While all scripturally oriented Christians center around some type of organized church life, 
Spiritualists usually minimize the social aspects of faith, relying on the invisible church rather than on any visible one. And these ideas tend to promote a strong individualistic element within Christianity. And to jump ahead just briefly, spiritualism is the 16th century precursor to pietism, which we will talk about when we get to the 17th century. Lutheran critics began to label all dissidents as schwarmer, German for enthusiasts with the connotation of fanatics. In its extremist form, spiritualism moves even further away from its New Testament matrix only to become a vague spiritual religion of some Neoplatonic character and hence no longer justifiably even being called Christian. The real former of the 16th century were the inspirationists who relied on inner inspirations and visions such as the Zwickau prophets Thomas Munzer, David Joris, and Melchior Hoffman. Many Anabaptist spiritualists were focused on eschatology or end times, the imminent return of Christ, angels, demons, dreams, and visions. <clears throat> Melchior Hoffman, born in about 1495, was a German mystic and lay preacher, and his roots reach back actually to the spiritual Franciscan tradition in Roman Catholicism, that is, the ideas of St. Francis of Assisi. His insistence on the superiority of the spirit over the letter was supported by a medieval allegorical hermeneutic. He combined spiritualist or mystical ideas with Anabaptist principles. Hoffman was not an educated priest who left the Catholic Church to join a reform movement. He was a skilled artisan and a furrier who became caught up in the religious upheaval occurring in Europe. He traveled through the Netherlands, Germany, Sweden, Denmark, and Estonia. Hoffman wrote a commentary on the book of Daniel in 1526. He seems to have embraced some Anabaptist ideas, but came up with many ideas of his own, including... The end of the world would occur in 1533 and that he would ride into Strasbourg with Christ in the clouds to establish the new Jerusalem. Christ had a heavenly or celestial flesh. When Mary was pregnant with Christ, she did not furnish any part of the flesh of Christ herself. Her body only provided nourishment for his. He rejected the typical Anabaptist pacifism and advocated that the children of light should fight against the children of darkness. His followers were known as Melchiorites. And now we come to the Anabaptist movement in Munster, Germany. Anabaptists took over Munster in northeastern Germany, and they were led by John Mathis and Jan or John van Leyden. They expelled the Roman Catholics, but the bishop and his armies laid siege to the city. Munster became the refuge of all persecuted and desperate people and became known as the New Jerusalem of radical Anabaptism. 
Evangelists spread the news that the Lord had chosen Munster to establish his kingdom on earth. On April 4, 1534, Jan Mathis, a fanatical representative of the view that the sons of Jacob would vanquish the sons of Esau, was suddenly seized by a foolhardy inspiration to go outside the city walls with a few followers to disperse the besieging army as in the days of Israel. He fell in this attempt. Hile Fiken, an Anabaptist woman, sacrificed herself in an attempt to kill the bishop as Judith had beheaded Holofernes in Israel, if you recall that story from the book of Judges. She was captured and put to death. John von Leyden instituted the principle of community of goods, a practice that some Anabaptist groups followed. The practice of community of goods was an imitation of the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts in anticipation of the coming kingdom of God. More complicated is the reason for introducing polygamy. John von Leyden introduced it against the judgment of some of the more serious ministers. It probably was an impulse of the king of the new Zion. In the New Jerusalem, the capital of the new Israel in which the children of light were fighting the children of darkness, according to the pattern of Israel in the Old Testament, King David could, with the same justification, introduce this Old Testament practice. Polygamy served at the same time as a social welfare practice since the number of men continued to decrease during the siege of the city. Word spread throughout Europe about the activities and persecutions of the Anabaptists in Munster. The idea of armed uprisings was a potent idea for many Dutch Anabaptists who were from the lower classes and very poor. Like the peasants' revolt in Germany during Luther's time, the incident in Munster appealed to the lower classes and the peasants who felt disenfranchised by social, political, and religious reform. The Anabaptist rule over Munster came to an end in June of 1535. It had lasted about a year. John Van Leyden had sent out apostles to Holland and elsewhere, trying to recruit followers and build up his army in Munster. Although some Anabaptists were able to get into the city, Van Leyden was not successful in getting the large numbers of men he needed to fight the Catholics. Finally, on June 25, 1535, Heinrich Gresbeck, an Anabaptist leader, went over to the Catholics, and he let the bishop's army into the city. Gresbeck led a group of Roman Catholic troops through a gate into the city. The Anabaptist leaders were cruelly tortured, displayed in various parts of the country, and put to death on January 23, 1536. Their corpses were hung on the tower of St. Lambert's Church in Munster. The cages are still hanging on the same tower to this day. Sorry. <laughs> In 1587, the church installed three yellow bulbs in each of the cages to be lit from dusk until dawn each night. 
in memory of their departed souls. I will note at this point that I have um, skipped over a lot of the more difficult details of the Anabaptist story. Um, there's a lot that you can read about. Um, if you are interested in those sources, I can uh, direct you to them. Um, again, we have younger members of the congregation present, so I have not uh, I have tried to, to uh, touch on those um, just very briefly. Now, the Hutterites. <clears throat> Jacob Hutter, uh, from about 1500 uh, and died in 1536, a very brief lifetime, was a Tyrolean Anabaptist leader and founder of the Hutterites. Um, the Tyrol is a region of Europe in between Italy and Austria, and it's a very mountainous area. It's really kind of like the eastern end of the Swiss Alps. Hutter was a hat maker and itinerant craftsman. He probably first encountered Anabaptists in Klagenfurt, Austria, <coughs> excuse me, and soon thereafter was converted to their beliefs. Hutter began preaching in the mountainous Puster Valley region between Italy and Austria, forming several small congregations. As soon as the Habsburg, Austrian Roman Catholic authorities in the Tyrol, learned of these activities in early 1529, they began to persecute these Anabaptists. The beliefs of the Hutterites were, the church must go back to the primitive beliefs of the New Testament. The church community must hold all goods in common, just as in the New Testament. Peter Riedemann, a member of Hutter's community, described Hutterite beliefs. Christians must forsake private property. A regenerate person has no desire to own personal goods. The community of goods is a necessary sign of the true church as seen in Acts 2. And they often pointed to the verse in Galatians 6, chapter 6, verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Now, if you think about it, these ideas made sense in the context of what the Anabaptists were experiencing. The persecution was so severe that it led to the loss of goods, livelihoods and lives. Most Anabaptists were constantly moving from place to place, looking for a safe place to live and seldom finding it. Many times, children were left orphans when the parents had been killed in the persecutions. They had to be looked after by the community. The persecution really caused the communities to turn inward upon themselves out of sheer necessity. Obviously, these communities had to take care of their own. Due to the often severe persecutions and difficulties that Anabaptists face and their common pacifist beliefs of non-resistance, these people began to think of themselves as the quiet in the land. 
Due to the conditions in Europe, their beliefs meant that they had to constantly be on the move in order to escape the sword and fire of both church and state. Hutter escaped out of the Tyrol into Moravia, Eastern Czech Republic, but the Emperor Ferdinand I by that time had decreed that all Anabaptists had to be expelled from Moravia. Hutter and his wife were tortured and executed in 1536. Hutter wrote the following words to a magistrate in 1535. Now we are camping on the heath, without, in other words, out in the wilderness, out in wild areas, without disadvantage to any man. We do not want to wrong or harm any human being, not even our worst enemy. Our walk in life is to live in truth and the righteousness of God in peace and unity. We do not hesitate to give an account of our conduct to anyone. But whoever says that we have camped on a field with so many thousands as if we wanted war or the like, talks like a liar and a rascal. If all the world were like us, there would be no war and no injustice. We can go nowhere. May God in heaven show us where we shall go. And of course, we know from history, a lot of them escaped to the new world. Interesting, and we will touch on this. Uh, I don't know if we'll touch on it next time, but we will touch on it uh, because the, sto the story of the Anabaptists continues. Amazingly, despite all the efforts of the political and religious ruling authorities of Europe at that time, we know that the Anabaptists were not destroyed, but they are with us to this day. They've had a profound influence on American Christianity. I encourage everyone to, if you don't know much about the Anabaptists, about the Mennonites, the Amish, and others, study their history. You will learn much that is very good. So that concludes my talk. Are there any questions or comments? Kyle? Yeah, you know, if the if the spiritualists were here today, we might call them charismatics or Pentecostals. <laughs> um, you know, and again, you can, uh, and we'll talk about this uh, in more detail later. But the, these spiritual, these ideas of spiritualism are really actually nothing new. They didn't just spring out of nowhere in the 1500s. They have deeper roots. They really, they go back to the beginning of the church. Obviously, we know from what we see of the New Testament church in the scriptures you know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, prophetic gifts, words of wisdom, words of healing. These are part of the New Testament church's experience and uh, certainly Paul's teachings. So in, in a sense, they go back to this idea of, you know, their focus was really more on the inner life of the spirit, the inner spiritual life of the believer. You know, let's not focus so much on doctrine and theology and all the wranglings that this leads to. Let's focus on what the Holy Spirit is showing us, and, you know, that's what we're going to fellowship around. 
Um, you know, of course, there is a danger in that if 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 spiritual things are not anchored and checked with uh, the Word of God, obviously you can wander off into, <laughs> you know, places that are not good. <laughs> um, so, you know, the the life of the Spirit is an important part of every individual Christian's walk with Christ and should not be ignored, but it should not be the only thing. Um, obviously, some people, whether you're talking about the 1500s or the 21st century, and, you know, we see this even today where people will say, you know, if you walk up to a person on the, uh, on the street and say, do you consider yourself a Christian? Uh, there's a lot of people who say, yeah, I consider myself a Christian. I read the Bible. I, you know, uh, believe the basic truths of Christianity. Do you go to church anywhere? No, I really don't. I just have my own beliefs. So, you know, at a bare minimum, you know, you could think of a spiritualist sort of being like that. Um, meeting together with different believers on a regular basis is not that important. Church is not that important. The Word of God may not be. But of course, if you're a spiritualist, everything's subjective. So anything goes. It's pretty much what I want. You know, whatever, whatever I feel is bringing life to my spirit, that's what I'm going to focus on. So it can, you know, it can get problematic. Daniel? Uh, how much do you think the, <clears throat> the availability of, of scripture in their own language, how to part play in spiritualism and things like that? I'm sure by this time with the spread of... Uh, the Bible in common vernacular languages, German, et cetera, French, um, you know, this only helped fuel Anabaptists. Um, because if you can get the scriptures in your own, you know, if you're, if you're not a learned cleric, you know, and, you know, you don't know Latin, you know, it was only the priests and monks that knew Latin. Maybe some of the nobility knew some Latin. But, you know, now that the Bible's available, you know, Luther's Bible, once that was written and published, it was everywhere. Any German-speaking person could get a hold of it, read it, and understand the Bible for himself or herself. So certainly, you know, again, thinking back to the talks we've done on the translation of the scriptures, how vitally crucial this is to giving the scriptures to everyone. Um, obviously, this has completely revolutionary implications, and that's why the authorities tried so hard to burn these Bibles, burn these people who were disseminating these Bibles, burn these people, you know, they, they were just, you know, we've got to stamp this out. This is going to destroy everything we built. All our power structures and the sources of our wealth are at risk now because the common man has the Bible. You know, any of these Anabaptists, those who could read, you know, and certainly there were, there were people who would read Bibles, um, I forget, I'll have to look the source of this up, but there's, I can't even remember the name of the group, but there was a group um, where um, somebody, uh, and I wish I could remember this better, but somebody who could read in the group, they would come to a church or some type of building, and they would just have public readings of scripture. 
like they wouldn't do anything else, but they would just read scripture to those um, who could not read for themselves. Um, people were desperate for the word. So, um, yeah, I mean, the translation of the scriptures into the vernacular languages that everyday people could understand, it was monumental. <clears throat> Well, if there's no more questions or comments, go have a cup of coffee. <laughs>